This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast. On today's show, we're going to look back at the action from the Portuguese round of World SBK at Estoril. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie on the show today. And Gordo, it was a strange weekend for us. Obviously, we were quite far removed from Mugello, but the impact of that weekend did uh, put a shadow over the whole of the world SBK paddock yes it did um, motorbike racing is a lot safer than it used to be but it's still a very very risky business um, and when the news came through initially and then finally about um, the happenings there um, it was obviously it's a very sobering thing for everybody when something like that happens um, it, motorbike racing is one big family we might be rival series and so on but everybody um, from whatever point of remove felt the same uh, emotion really um so yeah condolences to everybody um and it did make the weekend um poignant um at the end it is a strange situation i think especially whenever it's a rider in one of in one of the other championships obviously moto gp biggest championship in the world everyone that's in the world superbike paddock keeps an keeps an eye on what's happening in moto gp they've got a lot of friends there's a lot of world superbike connections in the gp paddock now as well and it is one of those ones that does have a big impact for everyone obviously no one wants to see incidents like this they can happen but it's also a reminder for everyone that we need to really be on top of our game about everything to try and keep risks to a minimum yes and there's been great work done on that um that job never stops the the biggest risk nowadays is just the proximity of the riders to each other. That's the the, the last primary risk that you can't do anything about because it's racing. It's as simple as that. Um, primary safety meaning barriers and, and things that are uh, not to do with the racing that are a consequence of a, a crash. Those things have been improved a lot. Uh, there's always work to do. Um, but motorbike racing is dangerous. It says it over the door and unfortunately it's true. Um, thankfully nowadays it's, it's something we're reminded of in the worst possible way um, infrequently, but it does happen, and it happened at the weekend. And um, there's no words really to, to to talk about the lost side of it, but it's just a reminder that however safe things are, we have to keep working to make it more safe, more safe, more safe. And I think Gordo as well. Obviously, for us in the championship, this was a weekend where we had back-to-back races, and it was a proper after the famine. Here's the feast. When uh, we've been off since October, and then suddenly it's straight from Aragon onto Estoril. It was intense. It was very intense. It was also quite difficult because also we've now instigated a totally different testing regime from last year in, in World Superbike, uh, which is all new to everybody in the paddock. Uh, it was intense from beginning to end. Travelling there, I mean, I literally had to negotiate my way out of Glasgow Airport to go to London to then go to Spain. And then I had to negotiate my way from Portugal to go through London to go to uh, Glasgow on the way home. Even though I had all my paperwork in order, everything was in order. Um, but I, it was still a case of having to talk to somebody at the end of the phone and justify why you were going, etc. And we are uh, officially termed as a, um, necessary workers, necessary element of the, the whole circus, like the mechanics or anybody else, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, but even with all the paperwork, it just made it really difficult. But the start was just, um, I mean, two race weekends back to back. It doesn't actually happen in modern day world superbike that often. Um, and it was great. But dear me, you, any cobwebs were gone after the first round and they were absolutely gone by a second one. It was it was slightly exhausting. Well, I tell you what, Gordo, the second one in Estoril, 
it couldn't have been more different than Aragon as well. Aragon, a wide open, modern Grand Prix track. Estoril, a tight, narrow, old school Grand Prix track. This is a track that was built 50 years ago. You were actually, you were actually there quite a few moons ago, Gordo, for one of the first uh, bike launches there. Oh, I went there for a CBR 600 launch in 90-something, 7, 6, 7, uh, and rode around it. Uh, I think it was the same track layout, maybe one or two corners changed. Um, but it hasn't changed much, but that's all right. You know, uh, the old school's a good school. Um, Estoril's got a lot of charm. It's a kind of stadium circuit before they made stadium circuits. Valencia's are, are deliberately built as a stadium circuit. Well, you know, places like Estoril are more or less that anyway. Um and it was good. It's, it's good to have the contrast. The, one of the things I, I don't want to do, and it is kind of becoming increasingly samey tracks, flat, no, not going through forests anymore, etc. Yeah, as long as the safety's good, the more character a track can have, the better. Um, and it still was great. It's a, it's, it's great. I, I remember going to GPs when GPs raced there, and Superbike did one, I think, and then stopped, or maybe two, and then stopped. That was a little before my time. Um, but no, it's, it's a great venue, and it's a great part of the world. Um, it's It was a great start to the season, and the two back-to-back at totally different tracks meant possibly different results, even though it's, it's tending to be the same guys at the front. There obviously wasn't too much overtaken in Estoril. It was a strange race for me. Yeah, and there's millions of places to do it in Estoril. The trouble is that the they don't stick. Um, and there's one or two places it can stick but you saw when, when there was a, a Jonathan uh, and Reading having a go uh, on the Sunday two or three corners but immediately the other guy came back again so it's that kind of place there is one obvious overtaking place at the, the start finish rate but because that corner actually comes back on itself a little bit it's quite easy for the old inside tight outside wide and the other guy nips up the inside so it's um, it's it, in theory, there's a million overtaking places at Estoril, but when you're at the edge like these guys are, yeah, you've just you, you saw quite a few block passes. That's it. It's just put yourself where the other guy wants to be, and you know, in a safe way, and then you're away. And that's it. That's the only way it's fast. I actually thought it was quite cool to have something like that because it's a very different challenge. This was a track position battle. It wasn't about your outright speed. It wasn't about this, that, and the other. It was literally about. I'm in front and I'm keeping you behind. And it was a bit more like a, a Formula One race compared to a normal World Superbike race. But there's nothing wrong with that. The championship should be about variety. It should be about being able to win in different conditions. We had the wet conditions in Aragon. We had dry conditions this week. You have a wide open track, a tight track that's difficult to overtake. We'll go to Misano next. You know, I think it's quite good to have something that's a real outlier. And Estoril is a bit of an outlier. Yes, and... That all I want is variety. I don't want to go to the same track every week. I'm not interested. It's I don't think like things that are homogenised. And I think all world championships worth the name have to be tests of different riders' ability. You can sit and design the perfect race calendar and the perfect weather conditions through the year to say, well, they were tested with the rain here. They were tested with the intermediate conditions there. It was boiling hot here, and the tarmac was melting here. How do you do it? The fast tracks, slow tracks, tight tracks, wide tracks, modern ones, old ones. That it should be a full test of a rider and a team and a bike's ability um, to be a world championship level thing. If all the tracks were really nagery and tight and difficult, that's fine. But at the same time, if they're all Aragon, 
maybe that's no good as well. I mean, Aragon's a great modern track. It's, it broke the mould a little bit. They made a big, fast, long straight racetrack with lots of interested parts, but it's big. It's a big scale. It's not Valencia, which was good to see because a lot of the modern tracks are, like Thailand or whatever, they're a lot tighter, a lot smaller. Um, very good safety, and that's always welcome. But it, 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 having Estoril as an outlier, I agree. And of course, we're there partly because of expediency. It's in Iberia, uh, Portugal's green for a lot of travel. Um, there are people in positions of power now who are quite happy to see races in Portugal. We'll have two this year. Fine by me. But you couldn't get two more different tracks even inside Portugal than, than Estoril and Portimao. So that's good. Even the, It's not like this Portuguese-style tracks. We're going to have two different experiences when we go to Portugal. It was also a track, Gordo, where it's a bit like Magni Core can be at different times. A tenth of a second here is kind of like a quarter of a second everywhere else. It's really difficult to find that little bit of an edge. And that's why we ended up with three manufacturers really closely matched. You look at those races this weekend, you could have put a blanket over Top Rack, Johnny and Scott for most of the weekend. And that's three different manufacturers, a Kawasaki, a Ducati and a Yamaha. And it ended up where we had great scraps with them all the way through. We had... You know, lots of signs of encouragement for BMW as well. Honda's obviously a bit behind the curve and, and struggling more than I think we expected them to at this stage. But it shows that the championships made a big step forward. All these bikes nice and competitive. Yeah, and uh, we just need to get all the, the, the other two manufacturers that aren't quite right there right now there, but they know everything's in place. It's just getting all that chemistry together with them. All the elements are there to make the right formula. They're just not quite shooting yet. BMW closer than Honda at the minute, it seems. Um, but three manufacturers find a way, and you saw the difference. You genuinely saw the difference in the motorcycles. The engine configuration, the way they worked, etc. Look at Johnny's line, and he, I think it was turn four. And he was just four feet, six feet away from everybody else. Every lap, you're thinking, what's wrong? And he explained later, he's just between gears. He just hasn't got the perfect gear for that one corner. So that's the difference between all the bikes as well. That was one of the things I was chatting to Pereira at the end of the weekend. Obviously, Johnny won two races, finished on the podium in the third, opens up a big 35-point lead in the championship. Estoril was the toughest race last year for Kawasaki. And I asked Reba, is this the best weekend you've ever had with Johnny? And he said, without hesitation, yes, this is the best we've ever had because we had to maximize everything. And I asked him about the reduced revs compared to what they had expected and it was exactly that that he, he pointed out like yeah you lose out a bit on the top end but it's mostly you lose that flexibility all the way around the track instead of maybe being able to hold second gear you might have to shift up or you might be just on that limit in a few different sections and it was interesting that that was one of the big things for him that obviously he's going to complain about the not getting the extra revs but it wasn't about top end it was just to have that little bit more flexibility in different places Yes, and obviously Johnny used it, and arguably Johnny's riding style is the means that he can use that kind of thing more than most. He's not relying on one particular thing. He can a, he can adapt, and b he quite likes to drive the bike, um, coming out of corners rather than you know stop it and rev it really hard in a straight line. So it was it was a bit of a bad news for everybody else um, that Kawasaki were able to uh, overcome both those challenges with the last minute to them last minute drop in revs. One thing to remember is it's back to what they had. So in some ways, that it's not like it's going below what they had. They're going back to what they had, more or less. Um, and obviously, they made a very good fist of it. Johnny just wasn't quite there on the first day. And they all, on Friday, his bike was way off. 
on Saturday they made changes. He wasn't quite there on Saturday, and then but by Sunday, he didn't just win the the big race. He won the little one as well, which shows that the bike's working in more than one area. It's not like he was just using the tyres better because everybody's on ten lap tyres, and Johnny used different tyres to the point whereby he didn't even need to use the X in the ten lap race. So I think that's all of more significance than maybe any other thing. Because everybody else thought, well, 10 lap race, we use the X. People are now using the X in the long route, long race. But Johnny was, uh, the setup says, well, you know what? We're actually going to do better on the X. The X tyre, obviously the super soft tyre in World SBK, Johnny was the rider and the other Kawasaki riders, it must be said as well. They had to stick with the zero tyre, a soft compound tyre. And for Johnny, he was able to make it work. And I thought it was really interesting that, again, speaking to Reba at the end of the weekend, I asked him like, you know, why did you stick with the zero? Was it just on that knife edge and it was a little bit safer to go with the zero? And Reba said, you know what? We were under pressure all weekend. Everyone was telling us, use the X, use the X, use the X. Scott's been able to use the X. He's won the race. And Reba said that he sat there on Saturday night and he went through all the data and he turned to Johnny and he said, we're going to trust our data, our information, and we're going to make our decision. And they went with their decision and it was the zero. And the reason that they did it is because they don't have to take risks. They've got Jonathan Ray, which means on your bad day, you're still going to be in a podium fight. So you're not going to give up massive points and you can be a little bit safer. And it turned out on, on race two, the race really did come to Johnny. But the race came to him because it was similar to race one, except he just didn't get boxed out at the start in race one. He lost too much ground on the opening couple of laps in race one to really be able to make that tire work for him during the first race. And then for Sunday, it was pretty much perfect for him. Yes, uh, he said in race one that it was all very well being uh, first away, but he said but everybody else used him like a brake marker from that high speed straight into the, the stock corner. So he said everybody used me as a brake marker and that was it. He just lost loads of places. Um, but Reading's take on the whole tyre thing was that the Kawasaki's in general says they consume more tyre, but they can also use more tyre. They're making it work more. Um, and that's a, a that's that's quite a, a difference that... Um, that from his bike, he said we can go fast into all that, but we are we can't use the tire as well as they do. So the Kawasaki is using the tire better, but it's using more of tire. Then she ha- therefore you have to use the longer life tire, even in the shorter races. But I mean, Troy Bayless used to set uh, poles on race tires. He used to break super pole lap records on race tires. When you've got the setup the way it is, and the main thing, and all things, whatever anybody else tells you, rider confidence and rider talent and rider on the bike at the time. Um, he just had it. He said, well, it upsets the bike if I put a different tyre on it. So go with the way it is. Obviously, with Kawasaki as well, Gordo, we came to Estoril and, and last week on the Aragon Review Show we were talking about, this was going to be the big challenge for Kawasaki. Obviously, Johnny's been able to come away with two wins and a pole position and another podium. It's been a great weekend. But we actually saw, again, on the other side of the Kawasaki pit box with Alex Lowe's, that he's made a big step forward because if it wasn't for his... Super Pole yellow flag infringement. He would have been on the front row of the grid. He probably would have been in the battle for top four, top five in all three races. You would have looked at it and thought, you know what, actually, he's had a great weekend as well. And it does show the big steps that Kawasaki have made. Yeah, I think so. That's the the litmus test in Kawasaki is always, how's the second rider doing because of Jonathan? Since he turned up, how's the other guy doing? If he's competing for a podium every weekend, then the bike's working really well too. Um, and despite that issue with the drop of revs that they were expecting, Lowe's is right there. And Lowe's had a shoulder injury through a lot of the testing in the winter and so on. 
But Kawasaki have brought a new bike, which may only be new in certain areas, but it's obviously the areas that are working because other people are showing what they can do. We know what Lowe's talent is. We understand on a good day and a good weekend what he can do, but it seems he's actually had a good start at two different racetracks. So this might be a significance. You know, Alex may not win the championship this year, but he might be third again. You know, it's entirely possible because, as you say, it was only the bad luck of the yellow flag incident in qualifying, which pinged, I think, six riders all in, my memory serves me right. Uh, they all had some kind of effect. Uh, I think Mahia stayed where he was just because his other lap was quite good. Um, but a lot of riders got, uh, what they would say, penalised by just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Alex still managed to, to do what he did as well after uh, three podiums at the first round. So, no, it, it, the whole thing looks good. Um, it doesn't necessarily look a lot better than everybody else's, but it's also not looking like it's got any great weak points, even for the second rider. So yes, they've obviously made a lot of progress on the other things they've done in the bike, details though they may be. Well, obviously enough for Kawasaki's rivals, it's going to be interesting to see what happens at Mizano. That's a track where Johnny's obviously had a lot of success there. That goes without saying pretty much at every circuit on the calendar at this stage. But uh, Alex has also had success there. He's had podiums. He's been a regular top five runner. So that'll be a good test to see if what we saw in Aragon and his pace, especially in the practice sessions, because he was in and around within a tenth of a second of Johnny all the way through the weekend. Be interesting to see if he can carry that to Mizano three rounds in a row where he starts strong. That would bode very well for Kawasaki for the full season. But it would also be a big test for some of the other bikes. Ducati do a lot of testing at Mizano. They know the place inside out. And, you know, Scott Redding, obviously he's had two race victories, but he's had two race victories where he's kind of gone a bit on a gamble on the tyres. Obviously went with slicks in Aragon. He went with the X tyre, the super soft tyre in Estoril for all the races. And race one had paid off. And I have to say, Gordo, I thought race one in Estoril was probably the best race I've ever seen from Scott Redding. He was smart. He defended really well. He was keeping top rack behind them no matter what. And he changed how he was approaching different sections of the track knowing that it was all about maximizing the exit, making sure the top rack couldn't get close to him. And I thought it was just a really clever ride and exactly what you'd expect from someone that's, you know, had a lot of success in the in the smaller classes in Grand Prix racing. Oh, he was absolutely in command, wasn't he? Um, he knew exactly what to do and then was able to go and do it. Uh, his bike worked well enough for him to let him do that. He, it was pretty masterful. I mean, it might not have been the most eventful race you've ever seen, but for people who are, you know, watch motorbike racing for a long time and uh, have, because the riders tell them have some understanding of how it works. Yeah, that was incredibly impressive from Reading. Um, if he could do that every race, him and Johnny would be separated at the end of the year by one point. It's as simple as that. If he could ride like that all the time, Johnny will beat him sometime, he'll beat him another time. Um, but it didn't turn out that way at the end of Estoril. But at the beginning of Estoril, it looked as if that could be three of those races. But it didn't happen. What did uh, Scott say on Sunday then after the crash? Because obviously he had two podiums in the first two races. He was leading the race when Johnny came past him and it just looked like he just tried to immediately attack to get back into the lead and just ran out of grip on the front. Exact opposite of that first race that you were talking about just there. He just lost his cool, I think, from what he told us. He made a mistake. He saw Johnny passing him and, and was worried he was going to get away and just asked too much of the front at the wrong place in the track. Um, the exact opposite of of the first race um, I think he just didn't want he maybe knew Johnny was going to have the pace if he was that close and he had passed him maybe he was going to be able to have the pace to go and he, he just didn't want to um, 
we always say about Johnny, if he doesn't win, he finishes second. I think Reading, somewhere along the line, whether he was thinking a lot or whether it was just a feel thing, I feel I have to stay with him for my best chance to, to compete at the end. But, yeah, I don't know if there was much decision involved. I think it was just an action. It was a, oh, there's Johnny, let's go. But he blamed himself entirely, Reading. I mean, he just said it was me, it was my mistake. Uh, I just pushed too hard. Um, which is incredibly, I think it's endearing that when someone just puts their hand up and says, look, it was me, they don't blame, time really blame anything. Um, and that was good. I mean, even the fact that he did that was good, but it did make a big difference to where we're sitting even now in the championship. It's now, you know, he's lost a load of ground that he'd clawed back after that first race. Obviously enough, Scott's race started with a bit of a bang with a jump start that didn't get called and then he eventually gets a time penalty well after the race is finished. And it was one of those ones where, obviously, Top Rack also jumped the start. That was, like You could see both of them jump. Top Rack actually stopped and got a big penalty. He didn't pick up any places on the run to turn one. Scott obviously makes a great start. He's miles out in front. you know. And uh, it was one of those ones that, because the call didn't come in about Scott getting the jump start, there was a lot of confusion for everyone. you know, Because you're looking at it and you're there like, I'm absolutely sure he's jumped. I remember even like on, on commentary, like Alex immediately said, the lights go out, Redding's jumped. And when there isn't a penalty, suddenly you're thinking, oh, maybe there must be some sort of mitigating circumstances there for Redding. And it's one of those, if he gets the penalty, he takes too long lap penalties. Obviously, you're, you lose five seconds to Johnny Ray. You're not going to be in a battle with, with Johnny. And if he has that penalty, he probably comes away with a podium. He comes away with decent points. And it's a, it's a strange one. Obviously, he could still crash. Don't get me wrong. He could still run out of grip and have a have an issue at the end of the race. But this was one of those cases where there was a lot of confusion for a lot of people. And I know talking to a lot of riders after the race, they were all just waiting for Scott to have to take a penalty. Yes, and the funny thing is that Scott found out about that uh, on his way to the airport because he just spoke to us in a big rush. I have to leave, go to the airport. And at that time, he was talking about not having a penalty and he thinks, you know, he did say, he said, I thought I might have jumped, but they obviously didn't penalise me and that's fine. Then the news comes through officially that everybody was expecting anyway that there was, he did jump. Um, but, the you know, the thing that for me is why did the powers that be not issue the same penalty? There is a question to be asked about that because Top Rack clearly jumped and got penalised two long laps and then Reading obviously did the same and never and then it happens all after in the jury room and all that which is never ever ever a satisfying outcome for anyone if they've got on track penalties use them well the reason that he got the penalty afterwards was one team did lodge an appeal and they said scott's clearly jumped the start what he's going to do about it and then they actually went in and went back through it and that's why he got a time penalty but it's also one of those ones where this is something that can be done during the race it should have been sorted straight away it shouldn't have gotten to that that late in the day yeah and the same camera angle we were walking, watching in the same camera angle as everybody at home on the screens in the media centre and it was like right away it was like oh right oh two of them have jumped there one worse than the other um, and I think Scott did, couldn't help it because when he he was already throttle on clutch half engaged at the edge but I think the main issue where it all stems from is that the, there's a time period of whatever it is that you can before the light goes. So when you get the final warning, then there's a period where they don't, you know they're not going to put the light, they give you a bit of time, then there's a period of time between that and then the cut-off point for starting the race where they can they decide, okay, we're going now. And it was towards the long end of that because all the riders said, well, we're on the red, we're, we're waiting a long time. 
waiting for the, the final light to go. And it was a long time and everybody was getting a bit nervous. And I think that's what happened, you know. But some people, because they, it's always a, a shorter end, kind of load everything up so they get the best possible start. And I think Scott just got caught out with that. He Basically, the, the, the drive from his engine and the clutch was more than the, the power of keeping his brake stopped. And Top Rack, I think, was again, he mentioned, I can't remember exactly the details with Top Rack, but he did mention that we've been waiting on a long time. Jonathan said that they were waiting on the, the final light for a long time. But he, Ray was convinced that, that Reading had jumped. He said, he says, he said, as soon as we got the first corner, he thought, well, he's at a start. That's, that's, he's got to jump that. Um, and sure enough, that's how it happened. But yeah, I mean, you need to penalise it. If we're going to have rules, we're going to have rules. But I cannot work out why that penalty wasn't issued the same as Top Rack. At the time, it just make life a lot clearer. Yeah, and I think especially now that we've got the long lap penalty, it's not a massive penalty. It's not like a ride through the pit lane where you want to be, you know, a thousand percent sure if something's a little bit on the limit. You know, Scott's should have been easy enough for them to be able to determine straight away. I'm sure there's there's different factors that go into it as well, and you know, it it there's a lot of things that race direction have to look at as well. So it'd be interesting to see what they have to say about it when we get to Mizano and they explain their decision to some of us. But uh, I think it was, there's definitely something that can be learned from it. And I think that's the most important thing is that you do learn from all these things. There's a new structure in place this year with the FIM stewards and, you know, they need to make sure week in, week out that they do their reviews and they're able to really analyze the mistakes that they make as well. Because this was a weekend where the stewards panel was actually in the news quite a bit and when we come back after the break we'll talk about some of the penalties that were handed out by the race stewards fly racing introduces the new fl2 glove with molded hard knuckle protection this race inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And Gordo, I was just mentioning before the break that uh, the, the race stewards were in the news quite a bit. The whole weekend started off in the Super Bowl session with yellow flying infringements. And there were some big names hit by that. Alex Lowe's lost a front row start, got relegated down to... 10th position on the grid. Eugene Laverty lost six spots as well. Chaz Davis lost his fastest lap. Alvaro Bautista lost a host of lap uh, of, of lap time as well. So he lost a lot of grid positions. And it was all for basically going through a yellow flag zone on your qualifying tyre. But in World Superbikes, you only get one chance at a fast lap. If the yellow flag is out, it's really tough for riders. Tito Rabat was I think the second rider out on track. He was behind Scott Redding and he went in too deep into turn one and he brought out the yellow flags and effectively ruined the session for quite a few riders and really made it very difficult for them for the full full weekend. Yes, it's a, a rule designed to protect all the marshals and medical staff that might have to be attending a rider It's this, and also a bike that might be in a dangerous place on the track. So I Everybody understands what the rules been brought in for, but the problem is there was no crash. In this instance, there was no crash. A guy ran wide, um, came back onto track through the, the, the off section of the track, yellow flag waves. So that immediately puts that whole sector of the track and everyone arriving in that scene in a yellow flag situation, which automatically now removes their fastest lap. So there was no crash, was the first thing that riders were complaining about. So well, there wasn't a crash to slow down for. 
Um, and also, uh, some people are saying, well, I think it was all unnecessary. It was just like the corner wasn't made. It was, you know, it, it was a, there was just no reason for the yellow flag in the first place. Uh, so that was the, the number one thing. And then obviously the new rule, which needs modifying. I think that was just unfair on too many people. It's one of those situations as well, Gordo. Obviously, if this happens in the 300 class or it happens even in the Supersport class where you qualify with a race tyre, you look at it and you say, yeah, fair beans, lads. Lose your lap time. You've got another chance. In this situation, these are the best riders in our paddock. These are super experienced guys. There's very few inexperienced superbike riders on the grid now. And it's one of those cases where a little bit of discretion could go a long way. It's almost like no harm, no foul. But... Like you said as well, it's also where the rules are there for a reason. And once rules are fully defined, they do have to be followed. Yes, and everybody that complained about the, the penalty they might have had, some more than others, all said, look, I understand completely the rule and safety is number one consideration. Okay, I lost some track position, but no one was threatening legal action. You know, <laughs> but it did make the weekend, and that's two whole races for that, uh, because it's uh, Super Bowl, two whole starting places, and then having to make up a position to get you a better starting position for the third race, completely affected by what is effectively, in that, in that circumstance, a, a paper decision. It just says so in the rule book. Um, the qualifying tyre, yeah, we have qualifying tyres, and it's cool to have them. It's You know, if they took them away, okay. But it's cool to have them, and every, it builds a bit of drama into Super Bowl. Super Bowl's lost a lot of status. It used to be the biggest thing that happened on Saturday, and now there's a race on Saturday. So Super Bowl's lost a bit of status, something different that we did from other people. Um, but now it's got a, they've kept a bit of drama in it because of qualifying. Well, did he use his qualifier early? Will he use it late? Is he, you know, is the weather going to change? There's a lot of uh, interest for the people who are really into the racing side of things. So it's, it's an important thing, and it's so important that it, it, it still matters for two races, even though there's three races in a weekend. So this, I think the, the powers of B have to go back and think about it, but the number one priority, especially on that weekend, given what happened in Italy, is safety. So a rider losing some starting positions for two races is nothing compared to the, even the potential of risk for a marshal or a, a rider in the, in the gravel or whatever. So let's not forget that, why it was brought in. And I am the number one advocate for safety. You know, I really am. I've been to too many races where that, that someone didn't come back from. So we that they need to find a way of matching those two things together under the new system. Yeah, I do think both sides of the coin can actually be right. And this is one of those cases as well where you can't argue with the decision and you can't argue really with some of the complaints as well. It's a strange situation when you get into that position. Obviously enough, though, there was another incident for the stewards panel to make a decision on and this wasn't a, this wasn't a, a split decision this was a very clear cut situation Garrett Gerloff his crash with Michael Rubin Rinaldi Gerloff's going to start next week from the pit lane and the reason for that is he's now had two very high profile incidents two rounds in a row you also go back to last season there was some incidents obviously Magni Cor into turn one with Eugene Laverty and Tom Sykes so there's a, a little bit of a trend for Garrett Gerloff and this crash looked very much like an, an avoidable incident and Gerloff obviously comes into the hairpin and he's breaking into the corner and then suddenly the bike kicks on him and he loses control of it and he's literally heading straight to the scene of the accident with Rinaldi but 
it's a very clear-cut penalty, and I think it's a good penalty as well because Gerloff has clearly been on the limit a little bit in recent rounds. Um, he is getting a bit of a reputation for these things. He's been involved in a few, as you say, high-profile things, one in Spain as well the week before. Um, yeah, whatever the circumstances, we know it's racing and that one tiny error can, can uh, have big consequences. Um, but when it's the same rider all the time, there's something at work. And whether it's the level, whether it's still trying to find that level, his talent is obviously huge. His ability, his ability to learn is really strong. He's had podiums. He's already started the season with one. The the guy's got lots of talent, but I think he might also be um, still a consequence of not racing with that many riders around him that are that fast. I think it's still a problem for anybody that comes through from any national racing, however high the level. You haven't got 10 of you. You've got two or three of you. And now you've got ten, and then the next ten are actually where you were last year. You know, it, it, it's it's maybe that's all it is, and maybe it was just one silly thing when he when he when he hit the brake, one tiny bit of slippery tarmac. I don't know, but it's the same rider all the time um, that's been talked about too often now. Uh, a lovely guy, and obviously he's, he's he's he doesn't mean to do any of this, but when it's the same name, it's the same name. It is one of those situations where, like you said. For for Gareth, he's coming in from Moto America, where you've got to beat effectively at that stage one guy. It was his teammate Cam Bobier. Now everyone is a Cam Bobier, and in fairness, everyone's also a step above where Bobier was because it's in a world championship rather than in Moto America. And when you're up against all of those guys, and it's so close, I remember talking to it was Alex Lowe's actually. I was chatting to him about it a couple of years ago, just asking about the challenge that he faced whenever he went from BSB to World Superbikes. Because I was going around, I was chatting to quite a few riders about it. Obviously, for Leon Camier, whenever he made the transition, he was an incredibly dominant BSB winner. And I was asking a lot of these riders how it felt to transition from a domestic championship into the world championship. And they all said the same thing. They said, you know, I was coming from being the big guy. I was the one with the target on my back. I was always at the front. It's easy when you're at the front. You're the one that dictates things. Whenever you're a little bit further down the field, you have to react to everything around you and you need to be you need to be careful. You need to race with an awful lot more intelligence in the world championship than you do whenever you're coming through in a domestic championship. Gerloff's got tons of speed. There's no doubt about that. I was chatting to a few riders over the weekend about him because obviously coming into this weekend, there was an expectation this could be the weekend where he picks up his first win. Yamaha go really well at Estoril. It would it wouldn't have been a surprise, and I was asking a few riders what they thought of him and you know his long term prospects, and quite a few actually said you know he did really well in MotoGP whenever he jumped onto the Tactua bike. Don't be surprised to see him as the American pick to go to MotoGP. They all said he's got so much speed and talent, but he needs to race more with his head rather than his heart and you need to react to what's happening around you. And I think this penalty could be massive for Garrett because it's going to come down to now whether or not he learns from these things or if he gets his back up and he says, you know, I'm not changing, this is how I ride. And I think that's what's going to be really interesting going forward. Uh, If he can ride the way he does and improve and learn and go even faster and avoid his competition, then he can carry on down that path. At the moment, it's not quite happening that way and whether or not there's other mitigating circumstances all the other riders are understanding well if I'm here and anything goes wrong I won't get involved in anything if I'm there and get involved in something that's going to happen so they'll choose the the first option you know you don't and again it was early in the race that's the thing that I don't really understand track position 
yeah, if if he was he could pass people, he's shown his ability to pass people as strong as well. Um it was a weird one. it was a weird thing, this the way the bike came and kicked and all that stuff. But when you're operating on the, the level of those guys all the time, there is no margin for error. Make a better decision every time. And that's easy for me to say sitting here. And it's easy for anybody else that isn't in that bike at that time. But that's the whole point of World Championship racing. Not everybody can do it at that level. And it's not just about how you fast chat. It's not a sprint. It's not a timed one lap thing. You're racing. It's also one of those things where, for Gerloff in particular, obviously this is his second year in World SBK. So he's not very experienced at the World Championship level. But this is his fourth year on a superbike. And that's one of the things that did get said quite a few times in and around the paddock from engineers, team managers. You know, they said, you know, whenever you're a young kid, yeah, you're given a bit of leeway. But whenever you're into your third, fourth year on a superbike, there's a certain level of expectation for you. And I thought that was quite good contrast then, Gordo, to what we saw from Andrea Locatelli this weekend, because I thought this was a really impressive weekend from Locatelli. Coming into the season, in our, in our season previews and all the stuff that we've written... I think both of us would have agreed that Locatelli, after all the success he had in Supersport, that there is a, a sense of where does he stack up? And it's on the good weekends where he really needs to take advantage of it. And he did that, particularly in Sunday's race. I thought he looked really good, set fast lap times, was able to come away with a top five finish. Yeah. Um, obviously, everybody's positioned in that. Some of the races has been affected by what happened to other people. However, that looked very assured. And that looks like a guy who's learning. That looks like a, yeah, it doesn't look like a rookie performance. I mean, he's obviously in one of the top teams, but that particularly that second race, he, he's got a cool head, and you consider how much winning he did last year and how clearly he did it. Um, it's quite tempting for him to be one of those guys that thinks, "What exactly what you were talking about earlier? Well, I was winning there, and I'm not now, and pushing hard, and maybe riding it too much like a super sport bike." If he's now learning to ride to take all his talent from his GP days into super sport days and into super bike days and use his talent the way the bike and the class demands it of him, then he'll be fine. And he showed real spark of that at the weekend on a factory bike, remember? he And he's in on the pressure of a factory bike. Last year, Gerloff had a private bike. Okay, very close. But private, he, you know, Locatelli has got more pressure than anybody because he's gone straight in on a factory machine. Now, He's, that's obviously something that he's handling quite well so far. Obviously, um, for me, I still do a little bit of work in the GP paddock as well. And last year, I was quite keen to see what some of Locatelli's old rivals had to say about him. And guys that raced against him in Moto3 all said, you know, he's a real talented rider. He'll, he's doing a good job because he's a good rider. The guys that raced against him in Moto2 said, you know, he wasn't a great Moto2 rider, but he scored points more often than not. He was a solid Moto2 rider. So don't be surprised to see him maintain his form on a super sport bike and then see what happens on a super bike. Superbikes right now is really competitive. We've got a ton of super experienced riders. It's tough to come in and make a big impact. And for Locatelli, it's, it's going to be tough to break into the top 10 on a regular basis. But on these weekends, whenever he's got a good opportunity, like you said, Gordo, there's some guys out of the race that would have been in front of him, but he still would have come away with a good point score and finish, close time-wise to where he needs to be. And I thought it was really impressive for him. And obviously enough, when you've got on the other side of the pit box, top rack, 
you know, coming away with three podiums this weekend, the second in the World Championship. It shows the Yamaha's good. But I thought one of the most interesting things for me was when we were standing in the queue at Barcelona Airport after Aragon, we were chatting to some of the Yamaha guys and they were saying that Toprak, without being told by Paul Denning or anyone within the team, he's walking across to Locatelli's side of the box, telling Locatelli the different things he needs to do on a superbike. Toprak's really taken on that leadership role over the course of the winter. Yes, um, and the only thing that Top Rack needs to do now is learn to ride the bike even better. But he's doing that. Um, he's he's a Sunday morning man. He needs to qualify better, which he, he has been doing. Um, but he needs to think about the racing side, the prep side, a little bit more. He's been accused in the past of relying only on his talent, which is considerable. Um, and there's an element of truth to that. But he's now learning that when you're in a factory team on a factory bike, you have to start thinking more. And you have to start thinking about things that you aren't necessarily prioritising. As some, but when six people say the same thing to you, you should be smart enough to go, oh, right, okay. So maybe my physical preparation needs to be better. Maybe my uh, the way I turn the bike here needs to be better. Maybe I don't need to rely on my incredible hard-breaking style every lap. Maybe some laps I should rely on having a, using the rear better or being smoother in the entry to let me catch the guy the next one. You know, the last of the outbreakers, top right, fantastic but he needs to learn he needs to put more different arrows in his quiver before he goes into battle if he wants to be world champion although he's sitting second right now um but no what i mean incredible talent but it's all about when you get to a certain level it starts becoming about your head we know he's got talent we know he's got heart but then you have to start applying the head why is johnny ray a six-time champion because him and his team and everybody around him uses their heads better than other people most of the time and Toprak needs to do that, and he's probably got the people around him to do that. Obviously, Toprak, 35 points behind Jonathan Ray, sitting really well in the World Championship, giving himself a good opportunity. That's in stark contrast, Gordo, to one of what I would have considered pre-season one of the big stories. How are Honda going to do? And this was a really tough weekend for Honda. We saw Bautista, he hit the deck three times on Friday. Leon Haslam really struggled as well. That's a bike that's got a lot of potential. It's got a really strong engine, I think we expected them to make a step forward this year. They've taken a step back. And I think that's where Leon Camier's role, and obviously Camier is listed as the team manager, but I think you know a racing director or a performance director is probably a more apt title in, in the eyes of what he's actually going to do because he's mostly a liaison, trying to improve the technical package around the, around the team with being a bridge between the feedback from the riders and engineers and then back towards the development of the factory. So Honda do have steps that they have to make pretty pretty quickly. Yes, they need to... Um, there has to be a lot of uh, finalisation there because what Bautista said at the weekend was he was surprised that they're still short in so many areas. And yes, Camier's role as team manager and maybe that's where they see him being finally but right now it's all technical and performance and, and how you get the thing to go around the racetrack faster. Uh, the logistics side and stuff is will come. Um, but yeah, I think everybody's surprised that they're quite so far off because we totally understood last year COVID, new bike, very different, I mean conventional in layout but nothing else, quite a radical bike in many ways. We understood very well that even a company like HRC arriving with a brand new bike in the championship the way it is now, and especially when they haven't been in with a with a real weapon, as it were, in World Superbike for a long time. But that was last year. This year it should all be much better from the off in every regard. Um, 
And I think ultimately what they've realised is that maybe somebody finally has realised in Honda that this is not mini MotoGP. This is taking a production motorcycle and turning it into a race bike, not the other way around. And the we were amazed last year when they brought the entire team from not World Superbike, wherever they came from. It wasn't World Superbike from top to bottom. It was mystifying to us because this is not mini MotoGP. So getting someone in who understands very well as a rider, who's been around a long time, who's ridden different bikes, who's got experience and a good brain on him, like Leon, is a very smart move. But Rome wasn't built in a day. And maybe now they're really only finding out what they need to change. I think that's what's happening. I mean, HRC are very secretive. They really don't like to give out um, secrets as such. It's good when they do open up because then you get to understand better the situation they're in. But the question we're going to be asking now and from the rest until things improve is why is this year not a really big step change compared to last year? It just doesn't look like a second year project, that to me. It just doesn't. Um, and again, they've only just taken Leon on. So there's only so much that he can maybe influence and change. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's disappointing. I think it's disappointing for everybody because we want them to be there. We want five competing manufacturers. And when you've got HRC over the door, you should always be, no matter what race series, and one of the two or three that's competing every weekend at the sharp end. I think one of the things that's going to be interesting as well, Gordo, is what happens going forward because the next couple of rounds are crucial. If you look at, you know, we get through Mizano and Donington, that takes us up to the start of July, and that takes us up to when a lot of decisions start to be made for 2022. Obviously, at that point, do you want to keep both your riders, or do you want to make some changes? There's going to be riders available that are at a very high level. You know, the likes of Petrucci, he's obviously in MotoGP at the minute, comes from a superstock background, comes from the World Superbike paddock, and his landing spot for next year could well be back on a superbike. He could be quite appealing for Honda, as well as a host of other teams, obviously. Chaz Davis, really good relationship with Leon Camier, pretty much best mates, have been for a long time. And Chaz is obviously an independent rider now, wants to be a factory rider again, no doubt. So will Chaz be in play? I know before Lowe's signed for Kawasaki, he had gone into pretty detailed talks with Honda. Would he be in play as well? There's, there's riders that Honda are going to be interested in, that are going to be interested in the Honda as well. And that's going to just keep putting the pressure on on Haslam and Bautista. And with all respect to Bautista in particular, we saw what can happen to him whenever the pressure's been on in the past couple of years. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're starting the silly season very early, Steve. Sorry, I haven't actually given an awful lot of cerebral space to this. It's round two, Steve. However... It's June, Gordo, it's June. I tell you what, I did, do you know the only reason I'm giving a thought now? Because KTM's already announced Remy Gardner's on a Tech 12 bike. And what happens on the other Tech 12 bike? Suddenly, for someone like Petrucci, he needs to find a home. It's mind-boggling. I saw that the other day and I'm thinking, oh, what? Eh? It's, you know, and then you realise, actually, we're into June. You know, so people are starting to think about these things. But it's just because we've only done two races. Well, actually, as well, Gordo, all, most of the options in World SBK, your your second year options on contracts, they kick into effect on the 1st of July or the 30th of June, whatever it is. So that's why it suddenly becomes very important what happens in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and again, again, it depends. Let's take, for example, the Honda situation. How much of that has been put down to the riders and how much of that has been put down to the bike and how much of that has been put down to the setup the bike operates in? Um, 
Is that just a rider issue? Well, there's two of them. They both got a lot of experience and they're both struggling. So I don't know if it is a rider issue. It could be. Some people were saying um, that maybe you know it's 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 easy for a certain rider's head to go down in certain circumstances. Okay, that that that, that I can get. Then that you can change. Um, but I think from the other point of view, it's also well, is somebody going to come in on the same equipment they've got now and do any better instantly? Uh, probably, possibly not. There has to be more than just one change, I think, to make that thing work. They've made a very clever step with Leon Camier coming in. The rider choice? You'd want to be on that bike, but you would if you were offered that bike against any of the other factory bikes right now, would you accept that offer right now? Because, you know, I mean, if you had a like-for-like like deal and you had a Honda or the Yamaha, a Honda or a factory Ducati, a Honda factory Kawasaki, would you take it? And that might be the issue that they're having. They're, they're same people that might be in competition for a Honda ride next year, assuming there will be one, are going to be maybe the same people are in competition for a Kawasaki, Yamaha or BMW ride. Maybe you would want to go the other way, a Ducati ride. You maybe want to go the other way. So I think that the dynamic there is not simple. And until you're inside, you probably don't know what the, the for want of a better expression, hold-up is with the Honda project. Because they will have success. They got a podium last year. They, there was flashes last year. But this year, it's, what are the flashes? Where are the flashes? It's, that's, that's it's quite concerning. And I think the biggest thing we need to start thinking about next year is somebody somewhere signs off on all this. There has to be a, 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 a an end point of this, a, daylight, a shining part of daylight in this. Or somebody somewhere is going to go, well, why are we doing this? That's my big concern. I mean, it's a long time in the future, hopefully, and everything else, and they will turn it around. I'm sure it might just be mismatches at the moment. And when they match together, that bike will be right there. there sh it should be. And the system should be. And the resources should be there. But it certainly isn't happening. In all my years of experience, this is showing all the signs of something that's not happening. And there has to be a change. Hopefully Leon going there is enough to match all the pieces together. And in three races' time, we'll all be going, ah, right, okay, fine. And everybody will want to be on it for next year. I'll tell you what, Gordo, obviously enough for us, we've got Mizano next week is when we'll all travel out. So you've got a few days at home before you uh, get back on a plane. But uh, you've been pretty busy at home over the last couple of days. I've been very busy. I've had people digging big lumps out the front of my garden, uh, laying a new driveway. We've only needed for 18 years. So we finally got around to it and, and shaking a couple of quid three for it. Um, yeah, I've been busy. Uh, the, the, the great thing is about being the start that we've had. And amazingly, I've actually got some new work this year, which I'm quite stunned about, given that and for freelancers around the world, it's, it's not easier times every year. Um, but it's kept me really busy and it's all been done and decided a bit last minute. So it's been frantic and wonderful. And I'm really, the lockdown months, which were very long, especially the winter ones, I quite enjoyed the, the summer lockdown last year. I have to say, I quite enjoyed that. The weather was nice. I got a lot done. But that was a long winter. And I just, I'm so glad I'm travelling again uh, and, and doing stuff. I don't like it. I don't want to be travelling. And, you know, there's still a, a nasty thing out there that could get any of us. But, it's great that the racing started and I'm really glad to be part of it. I'd much rather be there and be super careful than not be there reporting from it from afar. But yeah, I've been busy, man. I have been I have been Mr. Busy and I'm loving it and it's good. And 
what a start. I think we've had a good start. I think in some places we've actually had a great start. And I think the year could genuinely only get better as all these new riders and young riders and potential riders start really digging in. Imagine the two Hondas suddenly find a step change by halfway through the year. Locatelli gains even more confidence. Gerloff gets another couple of podiums. And that's before we've even started into the established stars. You know, are the established bikes? The new BMW, that's showing signs. Vandermark wasn't bad on the weekend, a couple of races um, after some trouble. No, I mean, there's an awful lot this year that, that could converge towards what is currently Johnny doing what Johnny does. But how many, and I've written about this recently, we are now also looking at people kind of jockeying for position for when Johnny retires, aren't we? As well as competing with him this year. I think that's another dynamic that's going to come into play soon. Who will be post-Johnny? Well, that's the one thing. that there's There's always someone that takes up the mantle. You know, you look at after... Foggy retired with his injuries. Suddenly, you were into the Bayless era, the Edwards, the Edwards era as well. And then after that, you were waiting for the next big star to come in, and that's when you ended up with like the likes of Biaggi coming in from Grand Prix or Ben Spees, even if it's only for a year. There's always someone that comes in to set the pace, and it's always going to be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, Johnny's not going anywhere for another couple of years. Anyway, he's got two years left on his Kawasaki contract, so he's going to be there for a while. But uh, it's whenever you look at the steps made by Toprak in particular over the course of the last couple of years, he's really taken on an awful lot more responsibility, an awful lot more expectation. And he's made such a big step that you'd certainly you'd be excited to see what happens for him. And I think that's the case for quite a few other riders. And I think you'd definitely be excited to see what happens now in Mizano as well. It's going to be a very different weekend, another challenge for these guys. And I'm keen to see how that goes. And Gordo, you were saying you're Mr. Busy. I think uh, probably the busiest person I know is our is our team behind the scenes here in the Paddock Pass podcast because they've obviously turned around the MotoGP show that went out on Wednesday, Wheel of Our Superbike show. There's the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show with the Moto2 and Moto3 classes coming up, and that'll be out at the weekend. Then we're obviously into a Grand Prix weekend, so we'll be back next week again on Wednesday with another regular Paddock Pass podcast looking back at the Catalan Grand Prix, and then another Moto2 and 3 show. And then we'll be back on with a superbike show after Mizano. So I have to say for uh, Brian and JB, they're putting in Trojan work behind the scenes to make sure that we're able to keep this content coming out. And it's the same on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where over a Grand Prix weekend, we have the Paddock Notes show. So each day we uh, get onto a Zoom call and we get everyone up to date with what's happening in the Grand Prix paddock. So it is busy times for Gordo and it's busy times for the Paddock Pass podcast as well. So from myself Steve English from Gordon Ritchie from all the team here at the Paddock Pass podcast big thank you to everyone for listening to the show and also a big thank you to everyone that supports the show on Patreon as well this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett music is provided by the Libertines all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com